I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 2014's Rubber Soul, a low-budget recreation of two interviews that John Lennon and Yoko Ono gave ten years apart. Using just two locations and a grand total of four actors, filmmaker John Lefkowitz cuts between the 1970 Rolling Stone interview, conducted shortly after the Beatles' breakup, and the 1980 Playboy interview, conducted three months before John's death, all faithfully recreated word for word with very few additional bells and whistles. The film was nominated for the Audience Awards at the South by Southwest Film Festival and was awarded the Founders Prize by Michael Moore at the Traverse City Film Festival. Despite both of those successes, the film is currently free to watch on YouTube if you just go in and search for Rubber Soul Film. Uh, So Ed, the film is about two interviews with John, ten years apart, but what is it really about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's about all of us in a way, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yes. It, 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 well, I mean, so I suppose what it's doing is it is showing you how much a person can change in 10 years. And it's also showing you how subjective the interview experience is. And perhaps that the interview, particularly the rock star interview, is a slightly imperfect tool for the telling of an artist's story. Certainly that maybe it should be afforded less significance. Uh, so certainly the Rolling Stone interview is afforded a huge amount of significance. And it really informed a lot of people's opinions of the Beatles in general. It definitely informed people's opinions of John Lennon right up until for a good, you know, 25, 30 years or so. 
and actually, I think there's a pretty good chance like that he was in a, a certain mood that day. I think it's a pretty good chance if you'd done the same interview th- the next day, he might have said completely different things. Yeah, I love that. I saw, um, I think there was a review on Letterbox or IMDb or something where someone said that uh, you know, the whole point of this film is to show that the uh, interview or the interview answers that he gives 10 years later are so different. But honestly, if the interview was taking place 10 minutes after, it would have been the same experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was, he was just that kind of, we've spoken about this a lot, haven't we, about how he was just sort of succumbed to his own sort of wants and uh, moods as it, as it was in that case. And I think this film really sort of shows up the contradictory nature of, of what he expresses in these interviews. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, 1970, he's sort of fresh out of primal scream therapy with Arthur Yanov. He's still very raw. He says something in the interview along the lines of, like you know, I've still I haven't had the chance to put myself back together again yet, or something like that. So you know, he he is not in a place where it's a good idea to take what he says as gospel. But then there's an argument with John that there there was never a time to take what he said as gospel, uh, and actually maybe that applies to all of us in some way, you know. And so you know, it made me think a bit about things like Wikipedia pages, which I think are, are sort of have become a wonderful sort of free crowdsourced source of truth in a way that and, and through the sort of uh, consensus approach to uh, fact correction if you like uh, whereby it's being seen by enough eyes and therefore gets reviewed enough times that it eventually becomes pretty reliable and pretty mm. source uh, pretty close to the truth that actually especially with artists a, a lot of status is accorded things they said about their art and that sort of passes into canon or consensus you know mm. and people think oh this is what he thought about his art you know and john you know says things but one of the things about his tone of voice and his manner in the interview is that he is like slightly frustrated at times you know it, it reminded me a bit of you know when when kids first go to school and they suddenly have the ability not to tell you everything because or, or, like they have some information that you don't know and they can hold it back from you yeah you say well, what did you what did you do at school nothing you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. and um and now it will <laughs> yeah and he is uh he seems to be in that mood a bit you know he sort of asks questions like uh what do you make of the rock and roll scene and he kind of says that um well i, t- I don't know like you know tell me some specific songs and i'll tell you if i like him like he's, yeah He's a bit weary with the whole thing, you know. I kind of get the impression as well that it's frustrating, I think, to watch this film in some ways because he's so contradictory mm. uh, with, with what he says himself within the same interview, even. Yeah. And I think that he strikes me sometimes, and, and I can't stress enough that this these are interviews that are recreated word for word, yeah. inflection for inflection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, this is not an interpretation of what he said this is you know this is a recreation yeah so i think we were able to talk about john lennon in this way through the lens of this film yeah but i think he um he strikes me as someone who's you know we know he's a he's a big thinker but actually he comes across in his interviews as someone who hasn't necessarily conditioned his thoughts or organize his thoughts in a way that makes what he wants to say about a certain subject particularly coherent yeah yeah you know and and that's why he ends up contradicting himself because I think he probably, you know, as as a big thinker, he probably he I think he often is thinking quite holistically about certain things and yeah. um, you know asking about rock and roll music and rather than just 
go down the route of giving it a double thumbs up and saying, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's gear, man. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. he's actually thinking, well, actually, there's, there's a, that's a big question to ask me because I can immediately think yeah. of contradictions and what I want to say about that. And then that yeah. then brings out a side of him where he's, uh, almost frustrated by the question because it's mm. too big to answer. And yeah, he, he yeah. almost approaches a lot of questions that way where he, um, yeah, he's, he's sort of put out at being asked by them because they're, 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 he doesn't find them easy to answer. And he, he wants to say big, important things, and he often does, mm. but they're not always consistent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of, yeah, it's a frustrating thing to be asked like a very general question. And, and you think, no, but I need you to frame it in some... So I, I can remember years ago, like, having a meeting at work where uh, I and, like, a, another guy, like, there the, were... The, three of us and the one guy who had called the meeting said he wanted to talk to us about like a specific thing mm. and then he kind of he, he he it was his meeting he was chairing it and he started the meeting by saying so what does everyone think and we, <laughs> and we were like but you but you asked us here like yeah. that, ask us questions you know but it, and i think john is thinking <laughs> the same way it's like no can you frame it for me because it's yeah. just too big Yes, because right. yeah, yeah. otherwise, all I will do is just just but, ramble but it, on. Otherwise, but also right? it shouldn't be. Or, or I, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because of how we know press interviews to go more now, mm. um, fifty years later. But we think we we kind of expect celebrities now to be interviewed and for them to be playing a game or playing the game. Sorry, I mean, yeah, um, you yeah. know, when when they're being asked questions, so you know they know they're there to provide sound bites and to sell the thing they want to sell, yeah, and to. You know, they're not. There's nothing more expected of them in that way. So, being asked, "Do you like rock and roll music?" shouldn't have to have a big answer to it that solves the question of whether or not yeah. rock and roll music should be liked. I, I suppose it, it does show that he is really sincerely engaging yes. with the questions. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. But I, I, but I guess that's my point: is yeah. that he's almost too involved in the yeah. in the interview process when really, like any other person, would be sitting back and being like, "Yeah, of course, rock and roll is great." Like, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and also, you know, my album uh, features a lot of it. You should probably all go and buy it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, and sort of, you know, like Paul as an interviewee, you know, we've talked a lot about how he, he has specific anecdotes, you know, yesterday and scrambled eggs, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, George with playing raunchy on the top deck of the bus, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You know, the good stories, I like hearing them. But like, he is a guy who is interviewed a lot and will just... It, unless the interviewer asks him some interesting questions, he reacts well to that these days. I've seen some interviewers recently do that really well. Um, but there were years when people didn't, and he would just reel off the same anecdotes because yeah. why not? You know, yeah, yeah of but course, jo yeah. John never really had that, I don't think, or he never had that instinct. No, there, there's instinct, but there's also, I think, decades of, of training. Yeah, you know, like yeah. through overtime and experience to, to know that actually what gets a good reaction, what gets good press. You know, one of those things, those those stories, like you say, like the only reason he, he doesn't reel them out because it's the only things he remembers. He reels them out because they tend to always hit the mark. Yeah. And he in, he probably was allowed to for a long time when asked the question to steer the answer down one of those paths, one of those well-trodden paths, because he knows he can then go on auto autopilot almost. And, and Yeah, definitely. Know, kind of here are the points I want to make. It's a bit like job interviews, right? You go, yeah. you go for a job interview and you've got like the sort of five examples of the good stuff you've done before and you want to work them in. And basically whatever the question is you're asked, yeah. you will bring it round to you putting in 
that including yeah, exactly. those examples. Good team player. Yeah, exactly. John, John Lennon would be a terrible job interviewee, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, but actually, I think like, but one of the reasons for that is I think that what are, what are your strengths? I don't know. Give me some examples, and I'll tell you if I like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, well, you know, you've got to be a bastard to make it. (laughs) Okay, we'll we'll give you a call. (laughs) Uh, But I think one of the reasons for that is that Paul actually has a desire to please the interviewer to some degree, but but the public, certainly, he has a desire to sort of please the public and sort of give them what they want and put on a bit of a show in a way, which is not an instinct that John had, really, I don't think. No, but but I will say that so I think one of the key differences between the two interviews with John Lennon being in a very different place in his life at both of those times is the 1980 interview, you see a much sort of more laid back, almost like a bit of a more mature version of Lennon. Mm. But in the 1970 interview, he's he's sort of in rant mode. Like you said, he's in, he's in a mood. Yes. Um, yeah. And it feels like he's got a bit, he's got much more of an agenda yeah. in, in that interview. And I think what comes across in his answers, and obviously, you know, in the film, but I think again, we can assume that it's it's faithful to how Len was in the in the actual interview. Uh, one of the things that comes across is there is almost a bit of a show that he's putting on. Uh, he's he's being deliberately provocative in some of the answers he gives. Yeah. Um. Quite. There was a moment that really stuck out for me when he mentions that I think he says something like. Which was the album that Klaus Vormann did the artwork for? Yeah, and you, you says, "Oh, it's Revolver." And it's like, okay, and did that come out after Rubber Soul or, or before? And he's just like, "Do you really not know which one?" Mm. Can you tell me of that white album with the drawing by Klaus Vormann on it? There's an album, Revolver. Was that before Rubber Soul or after? After. Oh, I see. Rubber Soul came after. You really don't remember which? No. Uh, maybe the others do. I don't remember those kind of things because it, it doesn't mean anything. Without wanting to sound too cynical, I watched that and be like, is that him wanting to come across like he doesn't care? Definitely, yeah. Right? Yeah. But, yeah. So in that way, it's a bit of an act that he's putting on Definitely, in some ways yeah. because that, that makes him seem like he's above it all. Yeah, yeah. Which is important, I think, for him at the time to seem that way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and actually there's a sort of interesting comparison because like in anthology sort of, what 25 years later or so George can't remember the order in which Rubber Soul and Revolver came out I think and that is totally sincere I think I mean A because much more time has passed and B because I think George genuinely did disassociate from the Beatles thing yes yeah, 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 and 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 you know thought of it as like nice memories, but not the most important part of his life in the end. Yes, you know? no, I completely agree. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to the sort of the original question I asked, that's about what the film is really doing. Mm. There is there's obviously there's an exploration there. I think uh, around the kind of contradictory person that John is yeah. and was known to be. The film even starts, I think, with a quote saying, I change daily. You uh, know. What does that say? I change daily, you know. Is, it, is so, that what it's... <laughs> yes. Crucially. Crucially, you, you know. know. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I do. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so and I think there is there is that uh, element to it, which you're, you're showing John as being a contradictory person by nature. But also, I think uh, it's, it's quite interesting to me to see that actually a lot of the interview questions he's asked are in 10 years apart are the same questions you know <laughs> yeah. he's being asked about 
how him and Yoko got together. He's been asked about the Beatles and the Beatles breakup. Yeah. That that you know doesn't really put the sort of the whole press and media industry in a good light. I think. No, true, true. I mean, like you've you've done far more like interviews with with actors and, and directors and whatnot than I have. Sure, like, yeah. Is, is that your experience of it? Because you will have done roundtables and like, and also you will have done a fair bit of it yourself in realizing that you've, you're asking, you're probably asking them a question that they've so, been asked a lot. My experience, and I, you know, I, I say this all the time, uh, and try and make this point as much as possible. But the the normal roundtable or the normal press junket or interview experience is that you are told that that person you're interviewing is there to sell a thing. Yeah. There is normally the implication that you shouldn't stray too far from the subject of that thing. Yeah. And then there is almost always a ridiculous time limit. Uh, on the interview yeah so i think the the best example i can give is i once interviewed ryan gosling uh i was in a uh, a hotel room alone with ryan gosling to interview him for his latest film yeah i was told that he will only answer questions about that film and i only had six minutes <laughs> right, right okay. so i had six minutes to interview him uh, about this film and i just remember thinking coming away thinking well by the time you go in there and you establish you know, the normal questions that you normally ask, which is, you know, how you got involved in the film and, mm. you know, uh, what interests you about it and those things. You're not left with really any time left to explore anything original. Mm. So Ryan Gosling's experience of that day is 30 or journalists yeah. literally asking him the same questions yeah, yeah. in six minute intervals. Yeah. And no one wins. Like no, he, yeah. he spends the day bored. Uh, all the journalists don't get really anything of interest or value. And then there isn't anything that then gets published that really helps to sell the film because there isn't anything interesting for anyone to watch or hear. Yeah, uh, that that's everything to say. But this is going back a few years, and I think now in the last couple of years, um, there's been a lot more focus on not asking celebrities about the thing they want to sell and yeah. getting them to do a fun thing instead that is likely yeah. to go viral right 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 yeah so like my and funnily enough even earlier today so we're, we're recording this maybe a month after the barbie film has come out so i saw a ryan gosling video today of of an interview situation and that situation was him being tested on which he preferred between a stack of pancakes and a greg sausage roll <laughs> right and that yeah. was the whole video yeah so uh, the film that i interviewed him for this is probably going back like eight years ago not 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 really anything particularly of interesting or value there but we've gone the other way now where what does get seen and gets uh, gets a lot of eyeballs is uh ryan gosling eating a greg sausage roll for three minutes and at the end, it just flashes up Barbie now in cinemas, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's and and that's going to get more attention. And now the um the sort of the the interview and press junket scene tends to be more geared towards producing that kind of content rather than sort of focusing on exploring the film in a sort of more, I guess I don't know, intellectual way. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. You know, yeah. You just reminded me actually that you and I both interviewed. Brian Cranston on the same day. Yes, we did. In yeah. the same press junket. So I... I it For was, Breaking Bad, right? Yeah, it was a Breaking Bad DVD release. And I was in the... It was a round table. I was in at about 10 a.m. And he was absolutely lovely mm. and brilliant and just great company and, like, really enjoyed the experience. And you could see that he was doing that thing of, like, 
he had his stock answers and would direct the question towards that but great and then i think you interviewed him about 5 p.m when he was a bit tired and a bit jet lagged and like a little bit more crotchety i think well you know but it's that's interesting i don't i don't i wouldn't have said he was i think you can tell when it's been a long day for celebrities particularly when the day is involved involving that i remember him being absolutely lovely um but he was a little bit more uh commanding of the room yeah. Than I think your experience was. Right. So I, when I think of the interview that, that I did with him, and you know, both of us went, our interviews would have been with three or four other journalists yeah, in the room at yeah. the same time. I always think of that time where I was interviewing him, where he would quite often, when he was telling telling an anecdote, quite drop his voice down quite low and quite quietly, mm. and then you kind of journalists have to sort of lean in, and you know, it's almost like. It, you could hear a pin drop because you're sort of on the edge of your seat, like listening to him tell the story. And it's, it's quite a, a compelling trick. I've seen, a, I know, a, uh, I've done a few interviews where celebrities have that trick in their uh, yeah. toolbox a little bit where, um, they talk quite slowly and deliberately, but, um, it's almost powerful in a way. And, but it's, it would be less enthusiasm than what you probably saw being with him earlier in the day yeah i suppose so yeah. but he was still lovely he's all like you know he he asked everyone's names and shook everyone's hands and took photos and all that stuff which yeah. most people don't do in those interview situations yeah. right? he, like, yeah. he was lovely in doing all that stuff but yeah he was a little bit more uh subdued i think yeah. rather than grumpy we should uh we should make a film in which we uh do shot by shot reconstructions of the two <laughs> interviews we did with brian cranston yeah. in order to juxtapose the changes he went through over the intervening five hours <laughs> <laughs> Such a contradictory man. <laughs> so mercurial. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to John Lennon. Oh yeah, uh, the Beatles. This, yeah, 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 sure. And this film, um, yeah, I, I, there was. The, I, I found it quite funny that uh, yeah, ten years apart, two different journalists for two different publications. Mm. Essentially, one of the things that this film, whether deliberately or not, it highlights the fact that actually the whole interview scenario is quite staid and repetitive and. It reminds me of that fact, and then I it gives me sympathy for the interviewee. You know, th- these are interviews ten years apart, but ultimately questions that would have dogged John Lennon throughout that time as well. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it, actually it kind of illustrates. Uh, I don't know about a difference in interviewing styles. Uh, Jan Wenner, who's in, uh, doing the Rolling Stone interview in 1970, seems slightly cowed by the experience. He's quite reverential. He asked questions like, you know, when did you first hear the phrase Lennon is God or something like that? Mm. And which I wasn't aware that people ever said, you know, but John is, you know, sort of, oh, yeah, I I don't know, maybe psychedelic era or something like that. He says something along those lines. David Sheff in 1980 is a bit more probing in Mm. general and does ask him some awkward questions, especially about his wealth and stuff like that, which which like Jan Wenner is, is not doing anything that is going to piss John off. Yeah, you know, because he wants him on the side. Like it, it's, it's so it's worth saying, like how much Rolling Stone magazine, of which uh, Jan Wenner was the founder or co-founder, uh, like in its infancy, its association with John Lennon was like very key to its early success. Right, and and then being able to get sort of exclusives with Lennon was really really good for them. You know, yeah. so like it made sense for them to be like team Lennon. Yeah, sure. At, at the time, you know? but and I guess it's also indicative of of Lennon's status at those those times as well. You yeah. know, like ten years after the Beatles are broken up, and after five years of Lennon not really being on the scene, mm. I guess you can imagine a journalist being a little bit emboldened 
by that and really yeah. more comfortable with being a little bit more probing. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, this this guy isn't, you know, like, there are bigger stars than this guy now. Yes, exactly. I'm yeah. not interviewing the biggest star in the world. I'm actually, you know, maybe even David Chef isn't quite aware what he's getting into when he goes to the Dakota. Is he thinking, am I actually going to be interviewing this sort of weird hermit? I'm not sure. Yeah, like, sure, yeah. Maybe it's that, you know, because um, he, he will have heard stories about, oh, he's just a house husband now and he's baking bread and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe he didn't know what to expect. The um, the wealth question is really interesting. That that was one of the, the bits in this film that really stood out for me because I actually wasn't aware. I, I mean, we'll probably get on to just exactly how iconic these interviews are in terms of what we learn from John and what we understand about the Beatles from these so so I I know a lot of the content from these interviews just from from what I've read in previously but I actually wasn't aware that he'd been probed about that no yeah. um, and so being asked specifically you know you're singing about giving up all your possessions but you're worth 150 million dollars mm. like sh- is it right that you have that much money yeah uh, and it's a really awkward question for John. I mean, and John doesn't, I don't think, he, he doesn't come off badly in answering it. I don't think he has a convincing answer. No, he doesn't engage with it. It's it's a bit of a sort of politician's answer where he yeah. sort of answers, deliberately or not, answers a slightly different question to the one that was asked or frames yes. it differently. So so the um, he, he says something along the lines of, um, when, you, when you're talking about giving up possessions, possessions can also mean like possessions in the mind, you know, like your, your unnecessary obsessiveness with things that don't matter and yeah. you know pervasiveness and uh of thoughts in your head and stuff which isn't really what the question's no, asking no, right? no, 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 the no. question's asking is do you need 150 million dollars in your bank account <laughs> right now you know yeah yeah and he, and he says well what would you have me do like give up or give away all my money and walk the streets and it's like no that's not what i asked you no like, yeah i i'm suggesting that you can just still be rich but just be less rich and yeah. be fine because he literally says like 150 million isn't 100 million enough or 15 million or 1 million yeah, you know, which yeah. which is a really good question to to ask when you've yeah uh, become particularly famous for a song that that suggests decrying all of that. Why does anyone need 150 million dollars? Couldn't you be perfectly content with 100 million or 1 million? What would you suggest I do? Give everything away and walk the streets? I I wasn't content with no dollars. I wasn't content with a million, and I'm not content with a hundred million. Contentment doesn't lie in money. Mm. Then why be in the game of getting more? Because to do what I do, I need what money does. 150 million? It's all relative, isn't it? What about all the talk about transcending possessions? You can transcend possessions without walking around in a robe. Your possessions can be in the mind. And I, I found it really interesting because we we did a whole episode on the uh mark chapman film didn't we the jared leto one chapter 27 chapter 27 yeah thank you and that was the one of the first times that i understood that one of chapman's motivations for, for killing john was that he felt aggrieved that uh len was singing about giving away possessions in imagine but was actually the you know he felt he felt that john's been hypocritical by sort of you know, being a rich, famous guy. Mm. Uh, that was one of the first times I realised that that was one of the motivations that, that Chapman had. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realise that that had actually been addressed with John directly three months before that murder took right. place yeah, in this yeah. interview, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I do think um, John's 
uh, sort of privilege is uh, privilege is a bit of a loaded term to use um, because you know he did, it's not like he grew, grew up with lo- lots of privilege, but he did grow up with more than the, the other Beatles. But I'm more talking about the the financial status he's got to, and he lives like quite a secluded life. He and Yoko are like really fabulously rich by this point. Like mm-hmm. they have invested money like very very wisely in real estate. They bought a herd of, of Cows that are, that that turn out to be like an incredibly lucrative investment for magic them. cows. Magic cows, yes, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yes. exactly. Uh, no, I forget what it was. It was like a, a slightly rare breed that <laughs> I can't remember. he traded in for beans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he met a strange and wizened old man in Greenwich Village. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not sure what it was. No, anyway, like I, I, I will. <laughs> I'll figure out the exact details and put a link in the uh, in in the episode description. Uh, anyway, like um, yeah, they they bought cows and uh, they were very rich at this point. There are things John says in it. So there's one where they're they're talking about drugs. So they're they're kind of juxtaposing what he says about drugs in 1970 with what he says about drugs in 1980, and it actually is quite revealing about the sort of life he was living in 1980. So in in 1970, he's saying, he's more or less claiming an addiction to pills. He says, well, you know, I've been, like, yes, we started uh, smoking pot in 64 or so, but I was taking pills every day from Hamburg up until then. You know, I was basically addicted to them. Yeah. And then in 1980, he says, well, you know, if someone gives me a, a joint, I might smoke it, but generally I don't. And he, and he says in 1980, like, why is everyone on drugs it is everything so bad it, i mean he's been happily snug in an expensive uh, apartment you know sort of costed against the in, the uh, outside world but it, it is worth noting that this period from sort of mid 70s onwards is, is famously a, a real decline for new york city uh in terms of the economy of the place like it, it had it had a sort of economic crash which i think was associated with um, sort of middle class people moving out to the suburbs and just a, a real um, nosedive in uh, tax income. Like city like had to declare itself bankrupt at some time. This is the period when it's sort of nicknamed Fear City because of the crime, and there are policemen at the airport giving out pamphlets right. saying, um, "Welcome to Fear City." Like, here's how to keep yourself safe. Don't go out after 6 p.m. Make sure that if you, the hotel you stay in, make sure you're near a fire escape, all this kind of stuff. Don't go on the subway under any circumstances, you know. Yeah. And, and and it it's quite a dangerous place to be. He and Yoko are completely insulated against that. Um, and it's sort of interesting that he liked New York City uh the cultural sensor it was but i think more like the idea of it rather than actually engaging in it you know yeah, sure. the, the punk scene has been going on around them in new york city it's not really engaged in it particularly you know i actually find it really interesting that you know you mentioned there about the, the punk scene uh, i just interesting hearing john lennon mentioned by name sid vicious yeah, it's like, which i just hadn't really heard him do before even don't think about them being sort of happening at the same time which is ridiculous no well no of course but i know exactly what you mean because you know i do end up thinking like i remember there was some interview he gave maybe it was even this one i forget but 
he sort of mentions like madness. He's heard madness and he likes, <laughs> he's heard like one step beyond or something, or one right. of the early ones because madness have just started. And he's like, oh yeah, I like that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's funny. Like they, they kind of intersected for like a few months when they got going and then John Lennon knew of them and then he died. But you, you don't, you think of them as being completely yeah. separate yeah. periods in a weird way, you know? Yeah. No, that was, and that's one of the great things I think about these, um, this setup where, where it's a, as much as possible, a recreation of the full interview is that you you get all of this additional information which probably wouldn't have made the cut when these interviews got published. Yeah, you know, like just a sort of an offhand comment about uh, Sid Vicious and stuff. It's great, just even you know that, seeing that play out. Yeah, yeah. Talking of playing out, uh, what do we think of Joseph Bearer, who's the the main actor playing John? Uh, I think he does a great job like with the brief that he has obviously been given he does a really great job now so you, t- you tend to watch these on a couple of levels the first one which is kind of inescapable is that your first reaction is like whether you want it or not is this a good john lennon impersonation the answer is in terms of the accent no not quite but in terms of the the cadence and actually that's the interesting thing about his performance because he has obviously been given the brief of you want you want to recreate the cadence of the way he speaks. Yeah, that's what you're going for, um, and uh, and he really really does that well. Like I mean, it, I, it gets across the. It's it's incredible. Like yeah. it's just like to the extent that there are several times at the start of the film where I was like, have they just dubbed the original recording over over him? Because it's because yeah. uh, I think you're right. I think the the accent isn't quite nailed on. Yeah, and understandably for a production like this. He's a few steps removed from being a good sort of John lookalike. Yeah, you know, so you're 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 kind of taken out of out of that uh, immediately because of that situation. But because he nails the cadence and the intonation so well, you are forgiven for thinking that this is John Lennon speaking. Yeah, like it's so such a great mimicking of John Lennon's general like demeanor as he speaks. Yeah. Like, Demeanor is not the right word. I guess it's you know it's like the attitude he has as he's speaking, mm. and it just it feels completely spot on. And one of my big things is I want, I wish I was a fucking fisherman. I know it sounds silly, and I'd sooner be rich than poor, and all the rest of that shit. But the pain, you know, I, I wish I'd sooner not be. Ignorance is bliss, or something. If you don't know, man, there's no pain. Oh, well, probably there is, but that's how I express it. It's shit. You know, one one of my big things is I want. I wish I was a fucking fisherman. I know it sounds silly, and I'd sooner be rich than poor and all the rest of that shit. But the pain, I'd sooner not be. I wish I was ignorance is bliss or something. You know, if you don't know, man, there's no pain. Oh, but probably there is. But that's how you know. That's how I express it. It's shit. We've come up against this a few times now. I feel like, and I think we were we were talking in our episode about the hours and times. Mm. If you remember, like we'd listened to the DVD commentary where the two actors were talking about it, which yeah. was really interesting, and they they were talking about how they approached their performances as almost trying deliberately not to do a spot on impersonation because they felt like it wouldn't leave room for character. Mm. The interesting thing about this is that it's not leaving room for characterization deliberately. Like it is trying to recreate the thing exactly. Yes, that it, is the point of the thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's they're not trying to create any kind of character uh, outside of what exists on on the tape already. Yeah, exactly. And, and yet, 
he sort of does get John's character across quite well, I think, in mm. general. He, he certainly gets his frustration across, his indignation in the Rolling Stone interview. And, you know, I remember, you know, the other thing I've said about Ian Hart before is that, you know, that the, it gets the sort of acerbic side of John very well. Joseph Bearer actually gets John's sort of slightly, sort of giggly side across very well in both interviews, actually. There's a sort of nervous laugh that he does sometimes when saying things that's very Lennon. And actually, I don't think I've really heard other Lennon actors uh, yeah. do that before. In those days? Yeah. yeah. I mean, why didn't anybody ever say, how come those guys don't split up? I mean, mm-hmm. what's going on backstage? I mean, what is that Paul and John business? Why aren't, you know, how can they be together so long? Yeah. Well, we spent more time together than John and Yoko in the early days, the four of us sleeping in the same room, practically the same bed, in the same truck, all right? Doing everything together. Nobody said a damn thing about yeah. being under the spell. They tried. Maybe they said we were under the spell of Brian Epstein or George Martin or something. There's a, there's always somebody has to be doing something to you. Yeah. We are the ones that cast the spell, not us. Guys are all right. Come on. Oh yeah. Oh, the boys is all right. But you go with a woman, there's something abnormal. <laughs> <A> twist. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's Boy. a twist and a half, isn't it? I, I find it really interesting that uh, you know when we talk about the audio of those interviews those original interviews being recreated so completely it's not just word for word like it's not just quote for quote it is all the times that he stumbles on his words Mm. or changes sentences halfway through a thought you know like all the things that happen naturally in speech are clear and present in this film it's and it's actually unusual to watch a film that isn't a documentary where the dialogue you're watching is actually um, told in that way. Yeah. Because everything's always polished, obviously, because that's how films work. Sure. So to, to go to the length of, of not just remembering the key thrust of what John is saying, but to actually recreate the, the audio syllable for syllable, it reminds me of, I used to do, um, I used to do English language at, at, at A-level, and I used to study the International Phonetic Alphabet, where um, you had to, you know, transcribe someone's speech, but actually put in things like a symbol for a glottal stop. And oh, yeah. um, there was like different uh, symbols and like pairing of letters and stuff for the sounds rather than how words are spelt. And it reminds me of that because it's the difference between how people actually speak naturally and how an actor reciting a line from a script sounds. Yeah. Because it's completely different. Yeah. So I was just really impressed that, in, in some ways, I was, you know, it takes me out of the film a little bit because I'm like, oh, this is so unusual to be watching a film that, that is doing this kind of thing. But mm. it's actually a very impressive feat for the actor, Josie Bearer, to be doing that so faithfully. We really, well, we had to do something. And what do you do when the pill doesn't wear off and it's time to go? You just can't. I used to be up all night with Derek, whether there was anybody there or not. I just could never sleep. We really, well, we had to do something. And what do you do? The pill doesn't wear off when you when it's time to go. You just go. I used to be up all night with Derek, whether there was anybody there or not. You know, I just could never sleep. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that Beatles fans get frustrated about with Beatles biopics of any kind, or when, when the Beatles are being played by actors is this idea that it's not being faithful enough to what happened in real life, which is a fair fair complaint, and I, and I understand it. You know, I think we've come up against this enough times now that I think, generally speaking, we've 
come to the conclusion that it, it that it's good when a bit of room is left in the story for there to be some expression within it you know, mm. you know while sticking broadly to the facts uh certainly the hours and times did that in quite a different way but but the interesting thing about this is that it is attempting to be like absolutely faithful to what happened that's that's the point of it and i don't know but then of course it raises the question well why not just use the original footage then why that's not just... what i was going to say that's what those those same fans would say right well <laughs> yeah like, yeah you know th- this is a work of fiction based on the beatles lives but that's rubbish because it's just not as good as beatles lives yeah. and then when you have a faithful recreation of something it's like well why even bother it's like well then you can't win well yeah exactly because you know this you know for, for those people but i mean by the way as i say i think it's i think it's a reasonable position to want want these things to be more true to life because the story itself is so dear to you i, I completely understand that motivation but on that basis like this should be your favorite beatles film ever <laughs> yeah right you know yeah <laughs> but 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 actually it raises a good point though because you're right we can listen to the original audio instead of watching this film mm. So again, I, I guess there is a question there of what is this film really bringing to the table, if that's the case? Yeah. Because if it's not a degree of artistic license or storytelling, what is the, the film actually offering? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a fair question. I'm not sure I've got a, a, a clear answer to that. I mean, so I, I, I certainly enjoyed it. I thought what it was doing was very interesting and was very well realised it's worth as a sort of artistic experiment. It's sort of more than it's entertainment. Actually, no, that's, no, I found it entertaining. I don't think that's fair to say. Like I was, I was definitely engaged by it the whole time. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not one of those ones. I'm not quite sure how to, how to judge it really. I think it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, um, in, oh, I want to say 98. I could be wrong on the year. Uh, when Gus Van Sant, uh, remade Psycho. And he did it like it was a around then, yeah. artistic experiment to recreate, you know, this this film like shot for shot. Yeah, there, I think there's value in that if you're looking at it through the eyes of an experiment. Like, yeah. is this a thing that can be done? And then you're raising questions. I think you know the the point of that as as a piece of art rather than as a mainstream film to watch and enjoy mm. is when is something truly original? Uh, when it's you know it, it can sort of raise these questions about the nature of the art itself and the medium itself. And yeah. I think there's something adjacent to that in in this film, which is as as an experiment f- for recreating something so faithfully. You know, it, it raises these questions around what counts as an original versus a retelling. Yeah, uh, if it's you know one is identical to the other, and I guess you know if you're going to be really generous. The question between comparing a recreation versus the original is not unlike the question the film itself presents where you're comparing the 1980 interview to the 1970 interview. Yeah. You know, the the difference, the, the nuance uh, in the differences of the answers that John gives between those two interviews are as much up for the debate as the one that we're having right now about whether something recreated faithfully is worth as much as just listen to the original yeah yeah have i gone too far down like a um a, a bit of a pretentious rabbit hole there <laughs> oh i mean wouldn't be the first time <laughs> but um i uh, i think that ship sailed long ago <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, but uh but no i mean uh, that that example about psycho is interesting because like i suppose what gus van sant is doing there is kind of asking the question it, it is the thing the sum of its parts yeah i like is the 
it, it, Psycho is a classic, and is acknowledged to be a classic by everyone. If I do the exact same things that created Psycho, will my film also be a classic? So the answer is like no. Mm. I mean, because no, no one thinks the like, the uh, the Gus Van Sant version is a classic, <laughs> but but that's but I, don't, I mean I've never seen it actually, but like I don't I don't think people generally think it's bad, but it's it's not really there to be judged good or bad, and that's kind of the point. Yes, this is, is he's saying like oh I've made the same thing as Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't think he's saying like why aren't I as lauded as Alfred Hitchcock? But, it, no, no. but he is kind of posing that broad question as, as exactly yeah. As... And there's a there's a similar thing. I think going on with this, because it made me think a bit about how I, I listened to it. I've never listened like all the way through to the Rolling Stone interview properly, but I, I did um, after watching this film. And it sort of made me realize how there are so many th- quotes from John, which I've heard. There's a lot of it, actually, his voiceover in the anthology comes from this. So, you know, mm. sort of different quotes, which I hadn't realized the source, you know, because anthology is sort of his audio is pulled from a few different sources, sort of longish interviews he did. And um, I'm so familiar with uh, those quotes, like the cadence of things. Mm. So, I mean, there is one that I don't think is in the, this film, but is in the interview, uh, the original interview, when he talks about how the dentist spiked him and George with LSD. Right. And he says, and he just put it in our coffee or something, you know. Uh, a dentist in London <laughs> put it, laid it on George, me, and our wives without telling us at a dinner party at his house. He was a friend of George's and our dentist at the time. Or I, <laughs> and he just put it in our coffee or something, you know. So, and that it is that my brain is so familiar with the way that he said that. Yeah, you know, spe- you know, spending a bit of time thinking about the word coffee or something, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. the, the Beatles' music is sort of quite similar to me as well, in that I'm so familiar not just with the songs, but with the little ad libs. You know, I know I can listen to the fade out of Hey Jude, and I know exactly when all, all of Paul's ad libs are coming up. Yeah, sure. Even yeah. though it's I've been listening to the same thing repeated over and over again for the last two and a half minutes. Yeah. I know when he's, you know, a, a, you know, about to do, a, you know, a big, a big whoop or something like that, because it's just completely ingrained. And so, all, what that is is the, the, the sort of specific vagaries of performance, uh, things that were done completely off the cuff and have just, because of their iconic status, have stayed in people's uh, consciousness and is just there on the surface the whole time. And I suppose what a film like this is doing it, it, it is sort of taking these and asking, well, is there the, the the actual event where he spoke these words, is it meaningful in and of itself? Yeah. Or sure. if, if you recreate it, is it equally meaningful? It's not it's not it's not hundred percent posing that question, but that is the that's the kind of area that it's getting into, I suppose. I'm also a big believer in uh, if these are the questions that uh, we are asking and watching it, it doesn't matter if that's the filmmaker's intent or not. Like, you know, that's mm. that's true of the the uh, the film itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, you can get away with doing anything. <laughs> Do you think he's listening to this and go, "Yeah, all right, lads." Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, just, I just thought it'd be a laugh, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's that, it's that it's that question, isn't it? Like you know, when you studied Shakespeare at school, and like the teacher tells you, like, "Well, actually, you know, this uh, this exact usage of this verb here uh, suggests this that happens later on," and you'd be sitting at school being like, "That Shakespeare wasn't thinking that when he wrote it." <laughs> yeah, rubbish. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're making this like, up, miss. Yeah, this it's just this rhymes. I'll stick it in. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on from Joseph Bearer, we should probably talk about uh, Yoko's role in this film, yeah. which is mainly one of silence. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, which, again, is, is faithful to original recordings. It's interesting, isn't it, like how this presents that because she is she has she has a few moments where she interjects at the occasional word yeah uh there's one moment where she starts to follow up on a point that john's made and john very quickly shoots it down the only time that she's doing this <laughs> yeah. and he's like well no actually no i want to stay on what we were just talking about there and just talks over her yeah, and stuff yeah. like that and we, we talked before about seeing uh, documentary footage of john and yoko on chat shows where it feels like John's quite often talking over Yona or Yoko or Ko or not giving her a chance to speak and stuff. And it, this feels yeah. in a similar vein. Yeah, I think that was in the US versus John Lennon. That's right, yeah. That. yeah. Yes, you're right. So I think in the so the original Rolling Stone interview, uh, she certainly says more than she does in mm. the bits of it that we get in this film. But it, it's still, she is very much the sort of ju- junior partner in the conversation, if you like. But she yeah. isn't silent, you know. But it, there is, I mean... So Denise Lee, who plays her, it, you know, it's fair to say she doesn't have a lot to do, but she does a good job with what she has. And also there's quite a lot of like, she will just sort of like uh, like half, as people do naturally in conversation, just sort of like half repeat something her partner has just said. I think he's sort of talking about Marxism or something. And she kind of says, yeah, Marxism, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah or, you know, that kind of thing in the background, which she did in real life. And Denise Lee faithfully recreates yes. the exact thing. I've heard the Beatles playing avant-garde music when nobody was looking for years, you know. But they're artists, and all artists have fucking big egos, whether they like to admit it or not. I've heard the Beatles playing avant-garde music when nobody's looking for years, you know. But they're artists, and all artists have fucking big egos, whether they like to admit it or not. Which, that, in fact, I can imagine might have been quite an interesting challenge for her, because, you know, uh, you know, that thing when you're acting like I'm sure like the best actors don't do this but (laughs) you know amateur actors are mainly just kind of waiting for their chance to speak yeah they're not really thinking about the thing that the other person is saying and engaging with it as you might if you're trying to immerse yourself into a character they're actually like okay as soon as they say bread rolls then I say like that's my cue to say you know yeah um it must be quite hard for her to escape that because she, she has, you know, sort of minutes and minutes of silence. Yeah. And it's like, oh, as, as soon as he says, got to be a bastard to make it, then I say, uh, yes, John, or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Then that's yeah. me for 10 minutes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, exactly. And it must be hard to escape that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I can just relax again for the next 10 minutes. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, have a cigarette in the background. Yeah. <laughs> um, you make it you make it seem like a, a play as well, you know, in yeah. that respect. Like, you know, her the idea of her sitting around for 10 minutes as if this wasn't done over a series of takes. You know, just literally like, and and if she got the timing wrong, they'd have to start again. I will say, I was I was quite impressed by uh, so John Levkovitz, uh, as a director here, any editor here actually, I think does a brilliant job in in both roles. Um, I was quite impressed to see this. You know, this is a film that's essentially about two big conversations that happen, uh, both conversations between three people that happen in two very minimal locations yeah but the the film is we haven't really mentioned this but the film is split up in chapters right you have these interstitials that um that sort of set out what the next chapter of conversation is going to be about Mm. and it happens quite frequently throughout the film but i feel like each chapter is shot slightly differently there are slightly different camera angles that are used for both interviews uh, for each new chapter yeah 
and you wouldn't necessarily pick up on it, but it's just enough to keep it visually interesting throughout the film. Because this is 83 minutes, I think, if the camera angles were the same all the way through, which you'd be forgiven for for thinking someone might do. They weren't really thinking about it. But there are moments in the film where uh, John is talking about particular subjects and the camera's actually really quite up close in his face. Yeah. Or there are some bits where you're just sort of slightly off at an angle and and yeah, it's just a neat trick to just subconsciously almost keep the, the film from getting too stagnant. Yeah, definitely. I, I think those things are really important. And actually, it's not the kind of thing that I always pick up on. I think you pick up on these things more, more than I do, but it, but I, I I certainly would have noticed if it was more static than mm. it was. I would have been aware that I was sort of growing visually bored with it in some yes. way, uh, yeah. but perhaps not have been able to articulate why that kind of thing. But yeah, it's I think just they're, they're just really good creative choices that he makes, you know. Yeah. Because I suppose you know there are these things where you, you think about films that are sort of all shot in one location or all shot in one take which there's been a few of that in the last sort of 10 years or so you know think about or even films with only one actor on screen so say like lock with tom hardy yeah. or the one where ryan reynolds is buried alive is it called it's called buried it's called buried it's clever yeah. title um and um are the, the sort of ones that have been shot at all in one take uh that kind of thing so like you, you do have to do things in those to keep keep the audience sort of visually interested as much as anything else like Locke is very good at because there's always a phone call going on mm. uh, and actually the the phone calls tend to be people whose voices you recognize so there is a bit of, of interest for you in that where you're kind of going is that Olivia yeah it's Olivia Comp. yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's kind of in there as well whether that's a deliberate creative choice or not but anyway yeah I, I mean films like that present a creative challenge yeah and I, I think he's met it really well here though. there is there is a film I'm thinking of and I can't for the life of me remember what it's called but it's a horror film that was famously at the time filmed all in one take yeah I remember watching that film and coming out and feeling like that entire movie was sold on the gimmick of it being all shot in one yeah. take or, or on the idea that it's all one take yeah uh, and it was horrible to watch, right? Because you you're very aware that, that there are no cuts, and yeah. actually, it, the, you don't think going in that that's going to you know it's going to be an interesting thing to experience visually. We don't actually realise that there's a reason why you cut, <laughs> like and actually <laughs> following uh, the same camera, not the same camera angle because the camera moves, but the same camera viewpoint for ninety minutes or yeah. however long is actually quite a tiring thing to do. It is, yeah. There's actually the the series The Bear that's on Disney Plus at the moment. Yeah. There is an episode. Actually, I'm not 100 percent sure if it, the entire thing is one take. There's an episode in season one. If that's what you're talking about, because I haven't seen season two. Yeah, yeah it must which be. does that, but it's for the first. I, I want to say 10, 15 minutes of the episode up until a big thing happens, and yes. then that's when the first cut happens. Yeah, you're right. That's it. You know, and like that is a show that I I find it quite stressful watching that show in general <laughs> because there's just so much stuff happening and everyone's shouting at each other, and like sometimes I do have to sort of pause it for a minute and go go and have a walk around and then come back to it but yeah like th- these things all have a thing to hang their hat on you know for for the bear that, that the way it really ratchets up that tension is, is kind of it's like gimmick for want of a better word yeah yeah know? one of the other things that the sort of the multiple camera angles technique adopts i say i say it's a technique like it's an innovative thing to do obviously it's, a, it's, it's you know if you're a filmmaker it's an obvious thing to do but yeah. I, as a viewer i find it interesting that yeah. that is a concession that a filmmaker has to make when you're looking at 
uh, action that doesn't move yeah. on screen. But I think what it does do is that you've got a camera that is very subtly shifting to different angles. And I think that also, in a way, almost subconsciously mirrors John's own sort of shifting answers. And he's, you know, uh, when he's talking and he's giving opinions about certain things that are contradictory in nature, mm. uh, this idea of us watching him through a series of different angles kind of adds to the effect that actually, you know, he himself is kind of maneuvering around certain topics in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and sometimes he's even just sort of framed right in the corner of the shot. You know, there's one I'm thinking of in the 1980 uh, scenes where, because there's a picture behind him on their kitchen wall and he's sort of framed. You can see most of it in this shot because he's really only in the corner of the shot himself. I forget Mm. what he's saying at the time, you know, but that's obviously what it's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what it's doing with the two things being 10 years apart made me think about uh, how we think, uh, like decades are very sort of neat things in a way, you know, in the way that you think of the 60s as, you know, a cultural movement, but a block of time in which these things happened and everything changed. And then 1st of January, 1970, the things that happened in the 70s started happening. Yes, yeah, of course. Like like everyone just stopped wearing the clothes they wore on 31st of December, 1969, and just immediately started wearing leather jackets, you know, (laughs) and doing heroin rather than LSD straight away. You know, that's kind of how you think about it. So in in terms of like cultural uh, appreciation or cultural study if you like decades tend to be like quite easy shorthands for sort of oh this happened in this period and this happened in this period and actually there's like there's very neat bookmarking uh the Beatles career and like their solo careers and John and Paul's in particular are sort of very neatly bookmarked in that way that the sort of the trilogy of solo albums that Paul has done McCartney from 1970, McCartney 2, 1980, McCartney 3, 2020. They're all like very neatly on on a zero yes, year, yeah. you know. And, uh, you know, and the interesting thing about McCartney 1 and McCartney 2, you kind of think of those as sort of markers of where that person is. And, and these interviews for John are also markers of where he is. The same markers, really. The same, well, it's, it's in the same time. They're the same years, yeah. yeah. So both 1970 and 1980. Yeah. 
And one of the things about the Rolling Stone interview in particular is it, it is probably the thing that's most responsible for kicking off this idea that, that Lennon was the great genius and Paul, everything Paul did was a bit throwaway, uh, which sort of persisted for far too long. Jan Wenner was very sort of enthusiastically participating in this idea. Like I said, it worked out well for Rolling Stone magazine, absolutely. But actually, it's interesting that with this idea that sort of John is the authentic one, that these 1970 and 1980 interviews are being taken as the sort of the key texts. And actually, Paul's equivalent of that almost is these two albums he's done. So he's almost ironically, Lennon's supposedly the artist. But yeah. Paul is the one who's expressing this stuff through his art, if you like. John is the one who is expressing himself through the interviews. Yeah, uh, because true. there aren't really iconic Paul McCartney interviews, if you like. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. there, there are ones that uh, you get, you see them a lot on YouTube, you know, because you will see ones sometimes where Paul is obviously a bit irked. What was There was a Give My Regards to Broad Street one where yes, yeah. he interviewed on... It was BBC News show by Peter Sissons, maybe, and he's he's quite annoyed, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. How much money do you stand to lose if it fails? Nothing. Why is that? Well, because it's a 20th Century Fox's film, and uh, already it's not actually losing money. I say, what happens is with me, as you probably know, being in the uh, media, is that if I do attract some bad reviews, those are the ones that are shown. And you'll notice those are the only ones you showed uh, and your man there who was doing the criticism was all he mentioned. In actual fact, there is another side to it, and they're, they're people, and they are going to see it, not in huge droves, but uh, as you probably know also, this isn't a massive budget film. Uh, the man's talking like $9 million is a huge budget. It's actually a very small budget. Um, so for what it costs to make, it's actually doing quite well. But like these aren't, there are no quotes from that that have sort of passed into law in, no, in the yeah. same way that John's did. Not, I guess not not representing just himself as a solo artist. I think, you know, when I think of iconic Paul interviews that there are such a thing, it's when he talks about doing drugs for the first time. Oh, uh, of course, and, uh, in his back garden. Yeah, there's yeah, that yeah. one. Right, and then right. um, maybe not many more after that. I can't think of any others, that, right, right. you know, where he's given a quote that's sort of stuck around yeah his his whole life yeah. where there's and, plenty of john ones yeah yeah and and actually but you know there, there's there's two readings of this potentially one is that paul has not generally said things in interviews that are significant enough for people to have to have really stayed with people and for them to be sort of you know endlessly quotable mm. or everyone thought he was a bit of a lightweight and so even if he did so there's those things in interviews that didn't really take take a yeah, lot of notice yeah. you know yeah. there will be so many uh, i feel like from 1970 onwards basically every i don't think john did loads and loads of interviews but basically all the interviews he did for the rest of his life are, are now very well known and like yeah. and so i mean by the way like these these two interviews we're talking about now have been published in their entirety as books so jan wenner published the rolling stone interview as lennon remembers and uh, david chef uh, published the 1980 interview as a book called All We Are Saying. As an aside, by the way, about David Sheff, I don't know. I, I recently watched a film which was on BBC iPlayer called Beautiful Boy, and I, I was sort of watching it thinking, oh, maybe we can get an episode out of this, you know, right. <laughs> as, as I generally will. Um, <laughs> and so, and um, it, it is about, uh, so David Sheff 
is played by Steve Carell in it, and it is about his real-life struggle with his son's drug addiction. Son is played by Timothy Chalamet. And, oh, um, yes, I know the film you mean. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's it's a really of lovely course. film. And of I, course, yeah. I completely know the film you mean. I didn't realise yeah. that was David Jeff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. If you remember, like, in his office, he's got these sort of John and Yoko Oh, I uh, haven't seen the film. I just know the one that you... Oh, right, okay. Um, okay. Uh, I know yeah. the one you're talking about. Yeah, Because yeah. that's very, very recent. Yeah, fairly recent. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Timothy Chalamet has not been around for that long i don't think uh, yeah probably probably longer than we feel like he has but yes <laughs> yes yeah. very true yeah he's, um, <laughs> he's probably got grandchildren now like, you know, and we just haven't noticed you know. but no i remember i remember that film coming out it was, it was a real sort of you know oscar buzz around it awards buzz around, right, around right, the film right. um but yeah i mean it's remarkable to me that that it's the the guy who interviewed lennon <laughs> Uh, in 1980, I didn't realise that at all. Didn't yeah, that connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like uh, th- these interviews are really accorded a, a significance. You know, no one has ever published a, an interview with Paul McCartney in a book. I suppose like, the, his his lyrics book is not far off that. I suppose. Yeah, but it's not a direct transcript. There is something quite reverential about publishing the exact transcript of an interview, as yeah. opposed to a summary of it or an article that that you know that, that talks around it in some way, e- even yeah. in long form. You know, it's like, well, this is these guys' words. Actually, the uh, like David Chef's title that he gave the book, All We Are Saying, obviously is, you know, from uh, Give Peace a Chance. But him choosing that does seem to be a statement of, you know, this was John's statement to the world. Yes. Like, you know, yeah, so it, you it just seems that, like, you know, when John said things, people thought this is important, like, you know, yeah. in some way. And it may have just been that journalists were very ready to feed that, part of him and I don't mean to feed his ego particularly but I think maybe uh maybe the beginnings of that habit of just sort of media sort of eating itself feeding itself and, and eating itself yeah, sure. in a way you know like and uh like here's this guy he always gives us good quotes we give him good publicity and so it goes round and round and yeah. round you know yeah yeah but and, and also just on a very basic level you know what I thought you were going to say there but the, uh, the beginnings of something was the beginnings of having just someone who is really, really good at giving sound bites. Yeah. Because just seem to have this refusal to play the game, the game that we were talking about earlier, you know. Yeah. Quite happy to quite happy to contradict himself. Yeah. And quite happy to just say whatever is interesting in the moment. Which is a journalist's dream if you want people to buy your publication. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it made me think as well about um, you know, that thing about sort of highlighting contrast between him and Paul is that so so what one of the things that really characterizes the Rolling Stone interview is, is uh, like just how disobliging he is not just about the other Beatles but about all the people around the Beatles you know so he says he describes sort of Derek Taylor and Neil Aspinall as sort of e- like egomaniacs and sort of something along the lines of oh that you know they were in the court of the kings for this you know and they thought they were the, they thought they were the big shots they thought mm-hmm. they were the artists because they hung around with the artists for so long and sort of i'm going to say like a a year earlier you know Derek Taylor is uh, like you know he's in the lyrics of give peace a chance he's uh, there's a quote from him on the back of the live piece in Toronto album you know Derek Taylor is is like a, a figure like they all loved Derek Taylor yeah and all of a sudden like John is just kind of lashing out at anyone and anything connected with the Beatles there's there's a very interesting thing where he recounts his taking acid accidentally which is kind of fairly well-known anecdote about when he I think he had like a 
a sporran <laughs> that he uh, like kept various pills in around 1967, which he would just be in the habit of just sort of opening it up and seeing what he fancied and just taking one out and eating it like a sweet. Um, and he, in the studio in March 1967, he uh, takes what he thinks is an upper. They're, they're at a uh, session for lovely Rita or getting better or, or, or both, I think. And, um, and it turns out to be LSD. And so he's taken LSD by accident. Hmm. Paul kind of recounts this as being so like George Martin says oh you you okay John you're looking a bit peaky you know um like, you know, let's go and get some air and they go up to the roof yeah and so Paul recounts this as like when we realized we were like no and like ran up to the roof to like to get him just in case he thought he could fly and jumped off because George Martin didn't know what he was doing and <laughs> and John I don't know whether he remembers it differently but basically what he doesn't mention in this interview is that Paul's reaction to like John being like he was having a bad trip and Paul took him back to his house in St. John's Wood and took acid himself so he could be in the trip with his friends right. and help him through it. You know? yeah, yeah. And I think, I think it was, I, I have heard it, heard it said that this was Paul's Paul who was like famously reluctant to take LSD. This was his first trip and he did it. I don't think that was true. I think he had done it before. Right. But that's an incredibly nice thing for a friend to do for another friend. Yeah. And John recounts this anecdote in 1970 and completely leaves out that part of it. Sure. Like he's, he's, he's absolutely, he is like slaying every sacred, sacred cow going. Yeah. yeah. That's why he's there. But to the point where he, he must be, uh, you know, he's quite bitter about Paul in the thing. And, you know, there may, there may be a lot of things where he has reason to be bitter about Paul. You know, they've just gone through the Alan Klein thing and they're all, you know, they're all they're all arguing. Like, you know, Paul was certainly pretty pretty stubborn in those. Uh, you know, probably not very easy to deal with in that, mm. the, all those negotiations. But he is being. You know, we, we have said that maybe he's being a bit disingenuous by like pretending that he, you know, that he's forgotten things that he probably hasn't forgotten and things like that. And here he's actually just being disobliging. That approach to just you know, saying a specific story in which your friend did a nice thing, but leaving out the bit where the yeah. friend did a nice thing. Because it suits your agenda at the moment, and and ultimately, a lot of this film is about the agendas he had, yeah, and and the the difference in those agendas, you know, from nineteen seventy to nineteen eighty, I suppose. Or- and and uh, that is called out quite explicitly in the film as well. Like, I'm I'm thinking of the the moment where um, you see in the nineteen seventy interview, John uh, dispel like claims that he and Paul wrote many songs together. Mm. And then in the 1980 interview, like that actually gets put to him and he was like, Oh yeah, no, I, I was lying. He just basically says I was lying. Yeah. You know, he said, Oh, we wrote together all the time. Like, and he reels off, like, you know, we wrote this and we wrote that on the van on the way to Newcastle yeah. and the other one as well. So like you, you have this situation where um, you have one half of the film calling out the other half for being just, made up <laughs> it, yeah. you know or un, you know untrustworthy uh, as, a, yeah. as a source yeah it's funny yeah it's, it's almost a sort of like you know deliberately unreliable narrator yeah uh kind of thing which then you know the same relator later on calls out his own unreliability you know, <laughs> which is a really yeah. interesting kind yeah. of construct actually you know? yeah exactly one of the things that, that actually made me pick my ears up because there's a moment in this film uh, where John mentions something, and I didn't realise it came from this interview. And it's yeah. when he's talking about uh, a writer, I think it was William Mann, right. who 
described the Beatles' music uh, in in sort of quite grandiose musical theory terms. Yeah. And the phrase is Aeolian cadences. Yeah. These Aeolian, yeah. Aeolian cadences. And John talks about this, and and he says uh, in in this film and in this in, in this interview, he says, you know, I don't even know what Aeolian cadences are. Mm. I think he makes a joke uh, that he thought they were birds or something, right? Yeah. And and, and it's not John, like the writer did actually attribute this as being something that the Beatles achieved through their music as yeah. a way of elevating what it is they do over other pop groups at the time. Yeah. But it always gets my back up a bit because I, I'm, I don't know, a, I'm, I'm not an expert in musical theory, but I know enough to know that Aeolian cadences aren't a thing. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> they just, that's not, a th- that's not a way to describe any kind of, thing that music is doing anytime okay so uh, the aeolian is a term used to describe a particular mode of scale okay so you have different types of scale you have like frisian and lydian and mixolydian and aeolian sure right and a cadence is uh you have different types of cadences which describe how a musical phrase concludes right so you can have perfect cadences or imperfect cadences depending on whether uh, a a, a musical phrase comes to a, a an ending that feels natural and resolves itself yeah or an imperfect one that feels like it ends on sort of you know a, a in an unusual way that sort of adds like tension or something oh, okay right? i can think as examples from beatles songs of those things yes certainly. completely yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but 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 those that's but you can't have an aeolian cadence right a, a cadence isn't defined by the scale yeah so you can't call out an Aeolian cadence because that's not how it works. It's, you right. know, a cadence is, you know, in the key that it's in, it might end in a certain way and that will define what kind of cadence it is. Yeah. Aeolian just means this is the kind of musical notes and harmonies that are being used in this song that belong to a particular mode of that scale. Right. Okay. But they are separate things. Right. I, I, I'm literally just <laughs> making a point to you because no, no, it no. bugs me every time I hear that phrase. <laughs> so when John says, like, you know, I didn't even know alien cadences that were a thing, they're not. Basically, yeah. is my point. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, I <laughs> think, I think, um, actually, it's interesting because I, th- I, so like, I have read that review, um, that, that, uh, William Mann did. I think it's called William Mann. Uh, so, so he was the sort of Times music critic and and so the times would not have had a pop music critic at all mm. like his job was to review classical music at concerts and records i presume but it, so him writing about the beatles at all w- was completely out of this world yeah and to to the fact that he had written about them uh in a serious way of appreciating what they had done i seem to remember that the aeolian cadence thing that he he is talking about he thinks incorrectly as it turns out is an aeolian <laughs> cadence uh is the final chord of she loves you where it, it sort of ends on that i think it's an extra sixth with the which whatever it is i i i thought it's a different song if i'm being completely honest but i, I could be wrong and, and there is also something maybe it's that but he's also talking about a, a relatively obscure one yeah. on a hard day's night. Something like I'll Be Back. That's the one I'm thinking of. I something can't remember what the song like is, but it's a relatively obscure song. Something along those yeah. lines. I appreciate that just the fact of having this writer write about the Beatles in that way was hugely important at the time in terms of what it did for the status of the Beatles being thought of as a more intellectual group than your average pop band. Yeah. But as I understand it, or at least from my own learnings and teachings of around musical theory, he's wrong. 
I'm <laughs> 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 just, just, I'm just saying that. I, I, I would even go so far as say, I'll look it up and I and and be quite happily be corrected. But my understanding of both of those phrases when it comes to musical theory is that you, they're, they're not defined by each other, so it doesn't work for me. Fair enough. Just saying it. I Fair can't enough. think of any other opportunity on any other episode of this podcast where I would be able to make that point. So as soon as it came up as an interview, I was like, <laughs> I'm now going to be able to express my frustration at that i think that's i think that's fair and um, what else is this podcast for if it's not for me to vent my own personal demons <laughs> exactly why bother having a podcast <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting that john remembers the phrase i mean given that as we've said he he perhaps affects not to remember the order in which yeah. the albums came out yeah he can true. very clearly remember a phrase used in a review of him from 1963 or whatever it but was. it makes the same point there doesn't it like this this idea of him being uh, removed or, or in some way apart from the sort of genius-like quality that's applied to him. So like this this idea of, um, oh, well, you know, apparently it's an alien cadence, but I just, you know, knocked that off in my sleep, you know, because yeah. I don't even know that it was called that, right? Um, is kind of on the same kind of level as um, which album came out first again? Was it was it Rubber Soul? Or was it Revolver? I didn't really pay attention to any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. he's kind of putting himself on a sort of different level away from uh, away from the the detail of the thing because it makes him seem like he's above it all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, like one of the contradictions uh, just within that interview is that he is sort of uh, trying to express how he's a, a genius. And, and, and says it by the way like he's yes. asked um Jan Wenner asks him are you a genius and he immediately says yes yeah you know I, d- I don't know what that means but you know if there is such a thing then I am a genius or words to that effect do you think you're a genius yes if there's such a thing as one I'm <laughs> I am one yeah. he wants to express that but and yet he just keeps on demystifying everything you know he's constantly saying things like because I think he's asked, you know, why was the album called Rubber Soul? And he said, it was, you know, it's just sort of a pun, you know. There's no great mystery to lots of this stuff, you know. It's just stuff that happens, you know. And, like, he's asked about the uh, the, the litany at the end of God, you know, I don't believe in this, I don't believe in that. And f- first, like, asks for the word litany to be clarified, mm. which is fair enough because you would not necessarily get get it from uh, from what it was said. But And then he says, like, well, like everything else, there were just words that came out of my mouth. Yeah, it's like, but I mean, this is like it, it, you singing those words and ending in "I don't believe in Beatles" is so significant. You can't get away from the significance of that, and you want the, the significance of your words uh, to to be sort of held true. It's obviously important to you, and and yet you keep on uh, at times just saying, "Oh, you know, none of it. We were just making it up as we went along." Yeah, that kind of thing. You know, you know, he's very, <laughs> he's you know, he's just very very conflicted in general. I think, I think this is, you know, this goes back to the point we made at the start of this, which was the, you know, uh, are you a genius? Yes. Is is kind of like a flippant answer for him to give. And he knows, it, you know, it, it comes across as flippant. Yeah, well, yes, but the tone in which he says it, both in the film and yeah. in the original, is is absolutely like he, serious. He's saying yes. Yeah. Yeah, but but I guess like he, him saying, he, but he, he knows that there's not a simple answer to that question. Right. So I get by saying yes, there's a certain flippancy to that because, in, you know, yeah. but, okay. but his problem is, is that, that, you know, my reading of it is that immediately what comes to mind when being asked that question is, well, define genius. Mm. You know, and he kind of asks that, doesn't he? He says like, you know, if there is such a thing, uh, then yes, I am one. Yeah. yeah. But the reasons why he ends up going around in circles and contradicts himself and um 
you know demystifying uh the work that goes into uh his genius uh is because he, he he's still thinking about things in a sort of that holistic way like what what is a genius like i am just saying these things these these words are just coming out of my mouth maybe mm. that is genius but you know who knows everyone calls me genius so yes i am like it, it, there's no there's there's no like um decisive opinion about that which is, i think is why he just keeps sort of bouncing around the topic rather than sort of being really really clear on a particular uh subject yeah it does seem like it doesn't it which brings me to uh and i feel like i've i've given away my answer for this but uh it brings me to the last question i was going to ask you which was why do you think the film's called rubber soul uh well that's all we've got time for folks. <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know i was thinking about this it's funny you know when uh i, I was thinking with the title of david chef's book all we are saying people do tend to name things after individual song lyrics uh, biographies in particular, you know, there's a, 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 a there's a, a book about uh, John's murder called "Let Me Take You Down," for example. Oh, you know geez. that that you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, where someone's just taken like one phrase from the middle of a thing and put it in. And so, "Rubber Soul" is not obviously is an album title and is never actually there isn't a song called that. It's not in the lyrics anywhere or anything like that. So for me, it really stands out as a, quite a specific thing to call a film that it is not about the period in which that album was made or anything like that. However, Rubber Soul is discussed in the uh, Rolling Stone interview. Mm. Um, Jan Wenner kind of puts forward the idea that Rubber Soul is when things started to change and when things kind of got serious, if you like. And actually, the framing of the Beatles' career into early Beatles and late Beatles, which is... A, like a simplistic reading of it, but a popular one. And, you know, I'm as guilty of thinking of them in, in that way as anyone is. It makes makes sense, you know. Rubber Soul is kind of often thought of as the turning point. Um, and so I suppose it has a, a significance in that regard, particularly because the Rubber Soul interview is kind of the one of the main things that kicks off this idea that the Beatles and Lennon in particular were serious musicians to be taken seriously. You know, this is not music for teenage girls. And in fact, teenage girls should not have enjoyed it because they were getting it wrong. Yeah. That's key. <laughs> um, and and actually, this is this is music for serious people who think seriously about music and, and meaning and authenticity and things like that. So I think may, that's sort of the best reading I, I could yeah, get for, for why it's called that. Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely a um, a parallel to be drawn there. I, I was thinking about this and, you know, like I guess I've already alluded to, I, I was going down a bit more of a metaphorical route and kind of imagined the rubber soul being uh, John himself and, you know, the, the rubber being him literally sort of bouncing around between different opinions on the same topic and mm. the idea of rubber itself being quite malleable and flexible and sort of highlights how he can be quite you know flexible when talking about different things and the the conflicts and contradiction in in the answers he gives but who knows honestly i think we're just gonna we're gonna have to try to get filmmaker john levkovitz in you know get in touch with him and i'll put the questions in directly yeah why not well ultimately what i think what this all should be leading to is us trying to get the uh interview time with john levkovitz and then we will post an episode in which we will ask his opinion about greg sausage roll because <laughs> <laughs> as is how all interviews are happening now <laughs> 
so yeah, I think uh, we have covered everything there is to cover on on the film Rubber Soul. Uh, again, available to watch for free currently as, at time of recording on YouTube uh, if you type and search for it. But we would love to know what you think. Please do uh, go ahead and uh, watch the film and get in touch with us and let us know whether you agree. Um, which of us do you think has the better interpretation of the film's title? Uh, was our cadence aioli enough for you? Um, <laughs> uh, let us know by getting in touch with us on all the usual social media platforms. We are at Beatles Films Pod. Uh, you can also leave us a review or a five star rating on your podcast listening platform of choice. In the meantime, we will see you again next week for another episode. And until then, bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>